It's time for the Monday edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, August 31st, 2009. Well, up here in uh, Windiana, we've already got the first signs that fall is about ready to fall. It's upon us. The trees know that winter is coming. Some of the liquid ambers here are already beginning to uh, turn color. And there's that cool, crisp night air thing going on. (laughs) It's like like my favorite time of the year. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to get you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. This is a very vital and important thing to do because Jesus warned us that in the last days it would be many deceivers, if you would, scoffers, people who uh, claim to be Christ or claim to have a word from him, but, uh, well, they don't. They're just making stuff up. And so uh, what do we encourage people to do? Get into God's Word. Don't just strip mine it for biblical principles that you think that you need to apply in order to uh, to please God in your life. Now, understand this. Obeying God is a very important thing to do. But we Christians don't do it out of coercion. We do it because we've been given a new nature in Jesus Christ. We are truly buried with Christ and raised with Christ. And uh, we are new creations in Christ. And therefore, according to our new nature, we can't help but do good works. And at the same time, we have this funny little thing occurring. Well, we're not dead yet. We haven't been raised uh, again with the new resurrection body. Therefore, as long as we tarry and sojourn here in this current world, we also get to struggle against in our sinful nature. And so that's why the Reformers uh, describe the Christian life as simul justus et peccator. That means that we are simultaneously justified, declared righteous by Jesus Christ, and still sinners at the same time. It makes for all kinds of excitement. So Anyway, all right, looking here at the program, we've got, I, I think I've overpacked today's program. I might have to be cutting things. We'll, we'll, we'll take a look at what we're going to be looking at today. I've got a Christian Post story. Catherine Jeffert Shorey, the head of the Episcopal Church, has, quote, clarified her uh, heresy comment. If you uh, remember back uh, not too long ago there in the summer, uh, you know, now that's fall, uh, Catherine Jefford Shore in the Episcopal Church had their big, their big biannual meeting or whatever. And, uh, in her opening statements, she declared that the uh, heresy of the Western Church was that, um, an individual can be saved. Well, that created all kinds of brouhaha around the web and around Christian circles. And now she's, quote, clarified her comments. And uh, her comments, her clarifications make it even clearer that she's outside of uh, the uh, outside of biblical Christianity. She's off in la-la land. We'll talk about that today. Got a news story about a homeschooled girl who's uh, in New Hampshire who's been ordered to attend public school uh, due to the fact that she has a very rigid faith. What, I kid you not, you're going to listen to this. And then Perry Noble down there at New Spring Church in Anderson, South Carolina, they've just uh, recently kicked off their latest sermon series regarding the lies of Satan. And I want you to listen to one of the promo videos that uh, New Spring and Perry Noble put together leading up to this uh, sermon series on the lies of Satan. And uh, 
And then we're going to take a look at what the lies are that they're covering. See if there's some kind of a disconnect going on there. And then we're going to also, uh, we're going <laughs> to... We're going to talk about, uh, I'm going to play a song, a love song for you today and see if you can guess who this one's supposedly being sung to. And uh, so uh, that'll, we'll do a little segment on that today. And then we're also uh, going to, I'm going to be tackling the topic of literalism and hell. I, there's a seminary student at one of the Elka seminaries who hangs out in that den of thieves on the internet, uh, the, the outlaw preachers hashtag. There at Twitter, and uh, he's written a piece regarding literalism and hell, and so I'm going to read his piece and uh, hopefully set this guy straight because uh, his biblical hermeneutic is just say lacking uh, some major components. And then today's sermon review is called "In the Heat of the Night," and it's by Rich Wilkerson of Trinity Church in Miami, Florida. And uh, boy, this is going to be all kinds of interesting. So stay tuned. Got lots of ground to cover. Now that uh, fall has officially kicked off in the northern states in the United States in the northern hemisphere, um, it is okay for you to wear fuzzy bunny slippers. Just want to let you know that. Uh, if you're still in some of the southern states and you're in the middle of you know kind of the end of the summer heat wave thing going on, you may want you may want to hold off on putting on your fuzzy bunny slippers while listening to Fighting for the Faith. That just could make things uncomfortable. And uh, those of you in the Southern Hemisphere, in the land of Oz or in New Zealand, uh, what we would uh, recommend there, is, I know that this, as the seasons change here and start to get cooler, they're starting to warm up there, you might want to uh, just assess the weather situation before donning your fuzzy bunny slippers while listening to Fighting for the Faith. And uh, with that, we're going to dive into our news today. From the Christian Post... Catherine Jefford Shorey, Episcopal Head, clarifies heresy comment. Ah, yeah. This is just all kinds of fun. This is written by Lillian Kwan, who is a Christian Post reporter. We read Episcopal uh, uh, presiding bishop, uh, Catherine Jefford Shorey, uh, <clears throat> released a statement Thursday defending her address... Uh, defending an address she made last month in which she called individualistic salvation the great Western heresy. Acknowledging the national attention and criticism her comments from the Episcopal Church's General Convention drew, Jefford Shorey said the varied reactions came from people who weren't there or who read her statement out of context. Now, here's the funny thing. Um, we didn't read her statement out of context. In fact, um, here at Fighting for the Faith, if you go back and you check our archives, you will discover that uh, I played her comments in context. In fact, of the 12 minutes of her opening statement, I played almost nine and a half minutes of it. So I did not at all take her comments out of context. And uh, so <laughs> and uh, I, saw, I heard the same thing everybody else was hearing, talking about the great Western heresy of individualistic salvation. Well, now she's had to clarify that because, you know, she let's just say she's experienced some heat and uh, people are basically considering her to be outside of the christian faith as a result of her comments to which i would basically say um since when did her comments make her outside of the christian faith i mean this woman left the faith a long time ago in fact she's pretty much a judgment uh from god against the episcopal church i mean there are no such thing as women pastors or women bishops and the fact that the, the head of the Episcopal Church is uh, Catherine Jefford Shorey um, kind of tells you where they stand regarding the authority of God's word. At least uh, 
democratically, let's just say, those who hold to the uh, inerrant word of God and the, that the Bible is authoritative are in the minority in the Episcopal Church. And many of those guys have already left that particular dominant denomination and have uh, reconfigured their allegiances with, uh, let's say, confessional Anglicanism uh, from other continents at this point. But we read, um, quote, apparently I wasn't clear, she wrote on Episcopal Life. Quote, in my address, I went on to say that sometimes this belief that salvation only depends on getting right with God is reduced to saying a simple formula about Jesus. Yeah, we commented on that. She said, he, Jesus, is reportedly insistent that right relationship depends on loving neighbors. For example, those who say, I love God and hate their brothers are, or, or sisters are liars. Now, this is perfect. This is a wonderful clarification because, again, it shows us that Catherine Jeffers Shorey does not know what the gospel is. Salvation is not dependent upon our loving our neighbors. Now, I've got to clarify this. And, I want, and I'm going to also throw out this alternate statement, to, which I believe is consistently true, that it is absolutely required for Christians to uh, perform good works and serve their neighbors. Now, you're sitting there going, wait a second, that sounds paradoxical. Are you contradicting yourself? No, not at all, actually. Um, first of all, the singular work of God is to believe in the one whom God has sent. That is Jesus Christ. We are saved by grace through faith apart from any works. You, there are no works necessary in order for you to be saved. And faith itself, believing, trusting in Christ, is not one of, it's not the one work that you've got to do. In fact, you can't have faith in God. That faith itself is given to you as a gift by God himself. Don't believe me? Read Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 8 and 9. Now, Christians are, sa are saved to good works. Now, the reason why Christians do good works is the very same reason, reason why sinners sin. We do what we do because we are what we are. Remember, Jesus said that a bad tree cannot bear good fruit, right? A good tree doesn't bear bad fruit. So, so here's the deal. Jesus himself argues from what we are. So here we go. Sinners sin because they are sinners by nature. It's, it's true. The reason you are a sinner is not because you sin. You sin because you are a sinner. Conversely, the reason why Christians do works, do good works is because they're saved, because they're Christians. That's what Christians do by nature. Good trees bear good fruit. So the person who says that they love God and then hates their brothers or sisters, that's not somebody who's been regenerated by God. That's, that's ridiculous. That's like saying you believe in flaming snowflakes. It's like saying that you believe in mountains that are also valleys. It just doesn't work, okay? Uh, the, the, they're mutually exclusive. So somebody who is truly a regenerate Christian would never hate their brothers or sisters. It's not consistent with their nature. Now, if they are being unloving and unkind and doing things uh, that are sinful against their neighbors, they need to repent and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Anyway, but Catherine Jefford Shorey here in her little explanation, uh, she kind of overlooks the whole salvation by grace through faith thing. In her opening address to the General Convention in Anaheim, California in July, Jefford Shorey spoke about the crisis facing the Episcopal Church as its members remain divided over the authority of Scripture and homosexuality and its relationship uh, with some Anglican provinces overseas is impaired. Now, that's because uh, Catherine 
uh, you guys, you, you deny the authority of God's word. You give God the middle finger when it comes to homosexuality. And don't, you refuse to listen to what his clear word teaches on it. And as a result of it, those Anglicans whose consciences are still bound to the word of God, uh, they cannot be in communion with you because you are rebelling against God. You need to be sharply rebuked and told to repent of your false doctrine and receive the forgiveness of sins for your rebellion against God. It's plain and simple. She said the overarching connection in all of these crises has to do with the great Western heresy and that we can be saved as individuals, that any of us alone can be right in a right relationship with God. That, that doesn't sound like it needs clarification. You were rather clear the first time. Quote, it's caricatured in some quarters by insisting that salvation depends on reciting a specific verbal formula about Jesus, she uh, she told Episcopal delegates. Yeah, that's right. And I, and that point, I, I say she's correct. Okay, she's correct on that point, but she's missing the whole bigger issue. You are not saved by reciting a prayer. The, the sinner's prayer does not save you. It's not a magic formula that if you just pray it, then whammo blammo, you're in the kingdom of God. Uh, regardless of what uh, Joel Osteen might say. Uh, we continue. That individualistic, individualist focus is a form of idolatry, for it puts me and my words in the place that only God can occupy, at the center of existence as the ground of being. That heresy is one reason for the theme of this convention. Her statement shocked many in the Christian community who believed the presiding bishop was dismissing the importance of a personal confession of Jesus Christ as Savior. Quote, how is it that a church can dismiss the clear words of Scripture uh, as a mere individualistic formula that Reverend Phil Ashey, chaplain and COO of the Conservative American Anglican Council, he responded. Richard Mew, president of Fuller Theological Seminary, this is going to be interesting because he kind of misses the point too, agreed that there is an unhealthy individualistic focus among Christians but rejected the presiding bishop's heresy comment. He said evangelicals never downplay the importance of individuals as individuals coming to a saving faith in Jesus Christ, according to Christianity Today. Quote, we never say that an individual's personal relationship with God is not important, he stated. What we do say is that individual salvation is not enough. <laughs> Richard Mew, president of the liberal Fuller Theological Seminary, his, clarifi his clarifying comments were not helpful either yeah that we what we do say is individual salvation is not enough not enough for what the thief on the cross he confesses christ and and asks christ to remember him to come into his kingdom the guy didn't perform a single good work that uh you know after his quote salvation uh, the only thing he did was c confess and trust in christ I mean, he was in the very act of being executed, you know, killed, murdered, killed for his crimes, rightfully so. And, uh, and there Jesus with him, you know, on, on a different cross has a conversation with him and says, today you're going to be with me in paradise. How fair is that? The guy, uh, individually he was saved and he didn't do nothing except for believe in Jesus. That ought to tell you something, <clears throat> Richard, uh, Mew. Quote, uh, clarifying her comments, Jefford Shorey explained that the theme of the general convention, Ubuntu, uh, not the, uh, the Linux operating system, but the word itself, which means I am because we are, was, in, uh, was intentional in focusing on restoring relationships with their neighbors rather than just the individual relationship with God. 
Individualism, she continues, the understanding that the interest and independence of the individual necessarily trumps the interests of others as well as principles of interdependence is basically unbiblical and unchristian, she wrote. Who's arguing for individualism? Which branch of Christianity is all in favor of individualism? Quote, if salvation is understood only as getting right with God without considering getting right with all our neighbors, then we've got a heresy, an unorthodox belief on our hands. Let me read that again. See if you can hear the confusion of law and gospel here. Quote, if salvation is understood only as getting right with God without considering getting right with our neighbors, then we got a heresy, an unorthodox belief on our hands. Now, here's the problem, Catherine. Your statement there is, her is heretical itself. Because here's the deal. Individual salvation is not me getting right with God. You got to understand at, at its fundamental level, it's God making me right with himself, reconciling me to himself through what Christ did on the cross. What was my contribution to that getting right? Well, my con contribution was my sin. If you really want to get technical here, but there was no good work on my part. There was no effort on my part. No, nothing on my part. I was made right with God through what Jesus Christ did. I didn't do nothing. Okay. As a result, though, the fruit of that reconciliation now is that I've been set free from sin, death and the devil and can serve God and serve my neighbor in love. I've been set free to love God and to love my neighbor. So if I truly am a Christian, truly have been regenerated through the work of the Holy Spirit, through God's word and the proclamation of the gospel, uh, through the means of grace, then I am, how could I not serve my neighbor? Reconciled to him? I'm, I may not be, quote, reconciled to my neighbor, but the thing is, I'm going to go and serve him. I'm going to love him, and I'm going to tell him the truth, that Christ died for his sins. And I'm going to serve him through the work that I do here at Fighting for the Faith and through being a good dad and, and the, the work I do and the vocations and the, the things that God has put me into. So already, see, Catherine Jefford Shorey continues to be a heretic because she doesn't understand the gospel. We are saved by grace through faith apart from works. And we are saved unto good works because Christians by nature do good works because that's what their new nature does. Or as James would say, just as the body that is not breathing is dead. You can you tell, how do you know if a body's dead? It ain't breathing. It can't fog a mirror. So faith without works is dead. You see what I'm saying? It's uh, Anyway... <clears throat> Okay, she added, salvation depends on love of God and our relationship with Jesus. No, it doesn't. Salvation does not depend on love of God and our relationship with Jesus. Salvation depends on faith. It trusts in God for the forgiveness of sins through Christ's death on the cross. Love of God is the law. And we give evidence of our relationship with God and how we treat that, uh, our neighbors near, nearby and far away. She's right to a degree on that last statement. Yeah, we give evidence. It's all imperfect here in this lifetime. Salvation cannot be complete in an eternal and eschatological sense until the whole of creation is restored to right relationship. That's right. That It'll be restored to right relationship when Christ comes and destroys the heavens and the earth and remakes them. Death and resurrection is the way, by the way. We anticipate the restoration of all creation to right relationship 
yeah, no, you're sounding like Rob Bell there, and he's wrong. And we proclaim that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection made that possible in a new way, whatever that means. Anyway, during the convention, the Episcopal Church's House of Deputies approved a resolution that declares the denomination's ordination process open to all individuals, including practicing homosexuals. Yeah, see, again, their heresy is just compound, and what do they have? They have a religion of works, 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 love God. That's Love God is not the gospel. Repent and receive the forgiveness of sins. That's the clarion call of the gospel. <sighs> Sad. All right, another uh, Christian post story here. This one written also by Lillian Kwan. Um, a homeschool girl ordered to attend public school over her rigid faith. This one's a little bit frightening. You listen carefully to uh, this particular story. Amanda Kuros. Uh, Kurowski, a, a Polish gal, uh, is a 10-year-old homeschool gal who performs well academically and is socially well-adjusted. But her strong Christian beliefs were, the re- were reason enough for a New Hampshire court to order her out of homeschooling and into a public school. Let me read that sentence again. Her strong Christian beliefs were reason enough for a New Hampshire court to order her out of homeschooling and into a public school. It sounds to me like the state of New Hampshire considers it to be uh, illegal for a child to have a rigid and strong Christian faith. And therefore, she's go- they're going to punish this girl by putting her in public school in the hopes that it will destroy her rigid faith. The daughter of divorced parents, Amanda, has been homeschooled by her mother, Brenda uh, Voidach, since her since first grade. Her father, Martin Kurowski, is opposed to homeschooling, arguing that it prevents adequate socialization for Amanda with other children. He requested that she be placed in a government school. In the process of renegotiating the terms of a parenting plan for the girl, the guardian ad litem, who, who acts as a, a fact finder for the court, reported that Amanda was found to lack some youthful characteristics, partly because she appeared to reflect her mother's rigidity on the questions of faith. The GAL concluded that Amanda would quote, would, quote, be best served by exposure to different points of view at a time in her life when she must begin to critically evaluate multiple systems of beliefs and behavior and cooperation in order to select as a young adult which of those systems will best suit her own needs. This is frightening. Although there is no dispute that Amanda is excelling academically and is generally interactive with her peers, her religious beliefs were seen as being held a bit too sincerely. So it's okay for children to have uh, sincere religious beliefs in the state of New Hampshire, so long as they don't hold them too sincerely. Alliance Defense Fund uh, uh, Allied Attorney John Anthony Simmons re, uh, explained to the Christian Post, quote, what this has become is an assault on the child's faith, and he's right. Judge Lucinda V. Sadler approved the GAL's recommendation earlier this summer and ruled that it would be best in Amanda's interest to attend a public school in the 2009-2010 academic year. Education is by its nature an exploration and examination of new things, the court order reads, 
a children a, a child requires academic, social, cultural, and physical interaction with a variety of experiences, people, concepts, and surroundings in order to grow to an adult who can make intelligent decisions about how to achieve a productive and satisfying life. Sadler stated uh, in the order that the court did not consider the merits of Amanda's religious beliefs, but only the impact of those beliefs on her interaction with others. This is this is really bad here. Um, so, you know, if I if we were doing pirate Christian radio in New Hampshire, based upon this precedent here, okay, uh, then basically, you know, the the court could order pirate Christian, you know, the 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 hosts of pirate Christian radio to also have to work at secular stations and to allow Howard Stern. Uh, you know, to actually have to work for Howard Stern in order to, because we might hold our beliefs too sincerely. This is a very bad precedent, and I'm really hoping these people uh, fight this. This is really messed up. So she's ordered in the public school, not because she's not slacking academically, she's excelling. She's not socially maladjusted, she's really socially well-adjusted. But see, the problem is she holds her religious beliefs too sincerely. Uh, who sets the standard for uh, what you know? Uh, what is considered sincere, sincere enough, and then too sincere for a child to hold their faith? My children aren't interested in Buddhism. They're not interested in other religions. Can they come and basically order that my children stop going to the church that my my wife and I attend because they hold their religious beliefs too sincerely? This is seriously dangerous. Oh, this is a very bad precedent here. <sighs> okay. Um, and while the court is extremely reluctant to impose on parents a decision about a child's education, Sadler noted that there was an absence of effective communication between the parents. Simmons filed a motion this week asking the court to reconsider and stay its decision. He, ex he contends that the mother enrolled Amanda in three public school courses and got her involved in extracurricular activities such as gymnastics and softball in an effort to acknowledge the father's concerns. Um, evidence also reveals that homeschooling has not deprived Amanda of socialization, as the father has argued. The, uh, the order issued by the court also acknowledged that Amanda is generally likable and well-liked, social and interactive with her peers, academically promising and intellectually at or superior to grade level. Quote, parents have a fundamental right to make educational choices for their children. In this case, specifically, the court is illegitimately altering a method of education that the court itself admits is working, Simmons stated. It's not the court's role to decide whose beliefs are right or whether or not someone is as skeptical as the court thinks she should be. Can anyone imagine a court ordering a child out of a government school and into homeschooling because the child is a rigid secularist? Well, of course not, he noted. The court has in intruded on the child's most fundamental liberties and should reconsider this unconstitutional encroachment. Now, the last time I, th I checked the Constitution, I thought we had uh, religious freedom here in the United States, that you can believe what you want to believe. It's not the job of the court to say that you, you hold your religious beliefs too rigidly. I, I, I see a Supreme Court case coming up here. This is rather interesting. All right, we're up on our first break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on today's edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at uh, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can look me up on Facebook or follow me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. We'll be right back.
God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor needs them. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Hey, do you want to feel holier than thou? Try Bible Thirst, holy drinks for people who need gratuitous amounts of piety. With all new flavors like prosperity, instant abundance. It's like adding your bank account to an electrical store. Sound the alarm, you're going to be uncomfortably holy. What's that? You want mana? Well, how about super mana? Made with lightning. Real lightning. Preaching. You'll be good at it. It's a holy drink for men. Clergy. These aren't your pastor's puns. They are righteous puns. Piety puns. Sinner, saint, sinner, saint. Prayers, lights, cross lights, power lights, more lights than your body has room for. You'll be so holy, Mother Teresa will be like, slow down. And be like, no. And roundhouse kick her in the face with your Bible pants. You know, so much holiness, holiness. Ah. Just praying all the time. Power praying, power preaching, power praising, power fasting, power meditating, power laughing, power spawning, Chester. You know, so much Chester. Just like Esau. Give prosperity to babies, they'll be holy too. Make your babies run abnormally fast. They'll be as fast as Elijah. People watch them running and think they're Elijah. They'll race as fast as Elijah. In a race with the actual Elijah. And it'll be a time they get deported back to Israel. Hey, go with the for sure thing. Don't gamble on your afterlife. Jesus. Try Bible thirst. The energy that will make you uh, holy. Uh. Orthodox Christianity clearly teaches God's law, which condemns our sinful nature, and clearly proclaims the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf to pay for our sinfulness. These truths of Holy Scripture are timeless and objective. However, a creeping fog known as the Emergent Church threatens to unravel these clear teachings by redefining the vocabulary and core beliefs of the Christian faith in terms of subjective personal feelings and experiences. That is why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to offer The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity, a book by Bob DeWay that is widely regarded as the best book available on the Emergent Heresy. The book is $12.95 plus $4 shipping and handling, and all proceeds directly support the Christ-centered ministry of Pirate Christian Radio. Log on today to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy of The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity. Back. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Warning, this program could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church. Especially if you're attending one of those churches where the pastor thinks his job is to 
basically turn the church into a self-help center. Meet the felt needs of uh, unbelievers by giving them tips and tricks from God's word to apparently make their life more satisfying, more to experience greater abundance or whatever it is that they're doing. Rather than preaching Christ and him crucified for our sins. Yeah, and you know, funny enough, I think on tomorrow's program, I'm going to be playing a Spurgeon sermon. We're going to listen to a historical sermon uh, from uh, Charles Hadley Spurgeon. You know, he's a reformed guy. He's a he's a Calvinist. I'm not a Calvinist. I'm a Lutheran. There are some differences, but we're generally in the same camp. And uh, I'll, I'll tell you this: interesting sermon because he he claims in that the purpose of preaching is to proclaim Christ. It's all about proclaiming Jesus, you know, him and him crucified for our sins. So listening to this program, well, that could cause you all kinds of problems. But I warn you ahead of time, not because I'm being tongue-in-cheek, but because literally that's exactly what can happen listening to this program. Because it's just a matter of time before God's work does its thing and you realize you ain't actually being fed there. You're actually being starved to death by someone who's supposed to be an under-shepherd of the great shepherd, Jesus Christ. That being the case, your conscience kicks in. The Holy Spirit says, wait a second, you're not being fed. You might need to go somewhere else. Just saying, just saying. And uh, all right, need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means your financial support is vital for us to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith, not only to you, but to other people. In fact, by supporting Fighting for the Faith, you not only generously make it possible for us to bring this program to you, you actually are being very generous by making it possible to bring it to others and to bring this message of discernment and the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified for the forgiveness of sins. Yeah, your sins, and even if you've been a Christian all your life, you make it possible for us to continue bringing this message to you as well as other people. Would you strongly consider, more than consider, would you partner with us so that we can continue to bring this important radio outreach to people? You can do so by visiting our website, Fighting for the faith.com and clicking on one of our friendly yellow donate buttons. Yeah, that's right. We have friendly yellow donate buttons. They're there right there on the homepage. It allows you to send in your uh, your gift securely, instantly, right there using the internet. Or if you would like to uh, support us the traditional way, you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 460 all right, um, Perry Noble of New Spring Church. He's do he's I think he's in week two of a brand new sermon series on the lies of Satan. Now, this particular sermon series title is one that I would go, whoa, whoa we better pay attention to this because you know we are, we are all about exposing satanic lies. You know, and so uh, I in fact I saw the uh, promo video for this particular sermon series. On uh, on another blog site, and uh, he he tells this great story regarding these satanic lies, and you know I, I'm all for you know at least what he's in theory what he's talking about. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna listen to uh, Perry Noble. This is him uh, introducing you know kind of teasing people about this uh, sermon series that he's going to do on the lies of Satan, and um, this is about uh, it's kind of about snake bites. So it's an interesting metaphor, and he tells a good story. So listen carefully. I don't know about you, but I absolutely hate snakes. Now, I know there's some people here today, and you love snakes, and you're weird. Because snakes were created by God to be hated. Much <laughs> snakes were created by God to be hated. 
All right, we're learning a little bit more about Perry Noble here. By the way, that's not in the Bible. Those of you who like snakes and are, are in, keep them as pets, he's not saying anything that's biblical here. That's actually a lie, but it's his opinion. We continue. It's like cats and spiders. So snakes, cats, and spiders were all designed by God to be hated. You know you're a redneck if... Anyway, we continue. A few weeks ago, I heard a story, a true story, that literally freaked me out just a little. There's a girl in the upstate that was getting ready to go to her bathroom to take a bath, and she pulls back the shower curtain preparing to fill up the bathtub, and in her tub was a humongous snake that had literally crawled up through the sewer pipe. Some of you are freaking out right now. Crawled up. It, it, the story, the way he's telling it, it he, he, I've heard this story before. What Didn't they tell us around the campfire when I was in junior high? Well, he's telling the story really well. I mean, can't you just feel the suspense? And there's this suspenseful music going on here. By the way, the video actually shows the snake in the bathtub. For those of you who really want to be creeped out and, by the creepy crawliness of this, we continue. Through the sewer pipe and was just hanging out in her tub. Luckily, she saw the snake and they were able to get it and kill it. Like, we should kill all snakes. Every once in a while, I have somebody tell me it was a good snake and there's no such thing. <laughs> Great story. Interesting. Uh, we're learning a little bit about Perry Noble. Apparently, don't send him a snake for his birthday. He uh, He would kill it. But... What if, what if she would have pulled back the curtain and the snake had kind of been over on the side and she wouldn't have really seen it? And she yeah, this, the this story, by the way, the video, they're showing the lady getting ready to get into the bathtub. It's very, uh, it, it, what's that the movie, The Psy Psycho? It's, it's kind of, it's black and white. It has that suspense of, you know, of Psycho here, the movie. Um, she had started filling the tub full of water. And what if? She took some bubble bath, put it in there so the snake, while still in the tub, was not able to be seen. Oh, man, could you imagine getting into the bathtub and you didn't see the snake because it was covered in bubble bath? Ah! And what if she put her foot into the tub with the snake and eventually laid down fully exposed with a snake oh you, you could imagine her just being bitten by the snake and dying a slow and agonizing and painful death that is of course if that's assuming that it's like you know a rattler um you know there's not too many different breeds of venomous snakes here in north america you know, you know, maybe in Africa, you know, she's getting it, and then it was a black ma black mamba or something like that. We continue. You know, what's really sad is while that story freaks us all out just a little bit, and it's going to make us all go home and look at our bathtubs, the church, in many cases is guilty of the same thing. The Bible says that Satan, the first time he appeared in Scripture, he appeared as a snake. And he distorted the Word of God. He deceived Adam and Eve. Now, okay, 
all of this storytelling, all of this suspense, all of this buildup, it is coming to a, a very valid biblical point. We're coming back to the snake in the garden and Satan's lies, right? I mean, this is huge. I mean, this is important. I mean, isn't this what discern discernment's all about? We continue. And eventually brought about their destruction because of the lies that he told. The Bible says in John chapter 8, verse 44, this is talking and he said you belong to your father the devil and you want to carry out your father's desire he was a murderer from the beginning not holding to the truth for there is no truth in him when he lies he speaks his native language for he is a liar and the father of lies another great biblical point fantastic fantastic you know a, a passage of scripture to bring up here i mean Great. I'm glad to hear that Perry Noble and New Spring Church are going to basically rip the facade off of Satan's lies and they're going to expose him for the lies that they are. We continue. And for too long, the church has fully exposed itself to the lies of Satan and have been bitten many times. Right. Like the lie that, uh, that, uh, that we can meet seeker needs and and want and not preach the gospel and that they can make a decision for Jesus, you know that kind of lie, you know, or 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 the lie that uh, it's a Christian sermon to uh, basically string together out of context verses to make them say that you what you want to say and and mislead people into thinking that they can be made right with God if they just apply three simple principles on how to make their their marriage better, right? Those kind of lies. So in today's message and in the rest of the series, we're going to expose... Oh, I know, like the lie that Christians who want to go in-depth in studying the Bible are Pharisees. That kind of satanic lie, right? That's what you're going to expose? The lies of Satan so that you and I, as followers of Christ, don't have to suffer through snake bites to the rest of our lives. Right, I mean, it's important. We don't want to suffer from snake bites. The, the metaphor is wonderful. You know, the only thing that'll stop the snake bite is the truth of God. Right on. Amen. Hallelujah. I agree with you. So will you be ready when he strikes? All right. So that was the opening. And so the question now, I mean, after that that dramatic, uh, you know, storytelling about snake bites and the snake that had gotten into the woman's bathtub. And what if she had been bitten by the snake and, and how Satan is lying to us and wants to bite us and, and tell lies? What are the big lies that New Spring's going to handle? Um, well, um, week number one. This is a five-week sermon series by New Spring Church. The big satanic lie that God will never put more on us than we can handle. Uh, how many people are burning in hell because of that one? <laughs> that big satanic lie. God's never going to put more on us than we can handle. Yeah, because if you believe that, uh, if you believe that, then you go to hell. That'll completely shipwreck you. Oh boy. Lie number two: New Spring Church just wants your money. I'm not making this up. I'm reading this right off of their website. Big satanic lie number two: New Spring Church just wants your money. <sighs> well, number three has some potential. Uh, just follow your heart. Yeah, that, that's that, that's bad. Hopefully, yeah. Uh, um, uh, if, big satanic line number four, my faith is a private issue. 
And big satanic lie number five on the Lies of Satan Snakebite series. It's just sex. Oh, boy. <laughs> All of that build up for that? Come on. Don't you remember Satan's big lie in the Garden of Eden was that they could be like God? They could be divine. I mean, you could talk about the satanic lies found in the cults and how Mormonism teaches that you can become a god. Or you could talk about the false lies and the false Jesuses out there and, and the synchronistic uh, practices of the emergent church. I mean, that would be a fantastic sermon series. Uh, you know, exposing the lies of Satan as it regards to the false gospel of Brian McLaren and Rob Bell. The, you know, those kind of lies. But instead, we've got the big satanic lie that New Spring Church just wants your money. Why do I feel like this is, you know, a build up to nothing? Or the big satanic lie that you are saved by your works? Or, uh, uh, unbelievable. Talk about missing the forest. I mean, it's not even because of the trees at this one. This is just ridiculous. It, it, yeah, because, you know, Satan, since the foundation of the earth, has been, you know, been trying to attack, kill New Spring Church and, and been telling people that New Spring Church just wants their money. Yeah, that, that's just that. I mean, that one goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Ugh. In fact, I think that was one of the that was the fourth temptation of uh, of of Satan's of Jesus there in the wilderness by Satan. You know, uh, you remember that we got to turn these bread, you know, turn these stones into bread. You know, worship me, and I'll you know all that kind of stuff. And then you have Satan saying, "And uh, believe that New Spring Church just wants your money." And Jesus replied back to, uh, "Never mind." Unbelievable. <sighs> nice try there, Perry. Um, you might want to read your Bible a little bit more and actually preach about some real satanic lies. The, the real ones. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Switching gears here. All right, I'm going to play for you uh, uh, a little bit of a of, of a song and uh, see if you can figure out who this song is being sung to. Here we go. This uh, The name of the song is The More I Seek You. Here we go. <laughs>
Is this woman singing to her boyfriend? Could you as a guy sing this song to your girlfriend? Oh, yeah, most definitely. The more I seek you, the more I find you, the more I find you, the more I love you. I want to sit at your feet, drink from the cup in your hands. I want to sit at your feet and drink the cup in your hand. Uh, boyfriend, girlfriend, okay, I'm fine with that. Lay back against you and breathe and hear your heartbeat. I hope we're talking about a boyfriend or girlfriend here. This love is so deep. It's more than I can stand. I'm melting your peace. It's Uh, by the way, this is a uh, supposedly a Christian praise song. And my ick factor just... I, this is the kind of song that turns Jesus into my bearded girlfriend. And boy, I'm, I am not homosexual. And there is no way I'm French kissing Jesus. And there's no way I'm going to sit on his... Lay back on his... Against him and hear his breath and his heartbeat. Oh, come now. No way. No ho... Uh, uh. repeat this particular love song four times and you've now got a, a, a praise song We have exchanged the great hymns of the Christian faith for this semi-erotic fluff? I've heard enough of that. By the way, I'd like you to hear an interview here following that particular icky, gross, oh man, that what is that uh, particular, quote, worship song? This is Matt, uh, Matt Redman, and uh, he was uh, he was on, interviewed not too long ago uh, I, by a bloke in Great Britain, and so they're talking about blokes, and blokes will be like dudes. You have to, we Americans have to translate bloke into dude, I think. But listen to this. I was at church the other week and I was chatting to someone. Um, and This is John uh, Buckeridge, uh, editor of Christianity magazine there in Great Britain. And he's interviewing Matt Redman about how come worship songs aren't for the blokes. That would be for dudes. He was... A blokish sort of a bloke, if you know <laughs> what I mean. And he said to me, what is it with worship leaders? Why do they come up with these songs that make me feel so uncomfortable? And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I can't just stand there 
close my eyes and sing how much I love. I just so love. Oh, I love you, Jesus. <laughs> I uh, worse, I'm not going to sing how I want to sit on, lay against Jesus' breath, uh, breast and hear his heartbeat, or have him uh, give me, oh man, to kind of lovingly give me the cup in his hand and let me drink from it. Give me a break. I can't sing a love song to a bloke. It doesn't yeah. do anything for me. Yeah. What do you make about that? And do you feel that he's got a point? I think he does have a point. And um, I'm definitely revisiting a couple of things I've written before and thinking, oh, I don't know, that, that's probably easier for women to sing than men. And Because in the church, you know, we can sometimes be a little bit more... Some people say the church has been underfathered and overmothered. And underfathered, overmothered? I mean... What? We've turned the whole thing into one estrogen-filled uh, erotic love fest for Jesus. Yeah, I just can't do that. It's an interesting point that, you know, like you say, a blokey bloke coming in, is he going to connect with what's going on? And, you know, some of this kind of romantic... A blokey bloke. I, I'm a, I guess that's the a duty dude. Um, uh, is he going to connect with what's going on? No, I am not... Oh, yeah will not sing those songs that make me feel like I'm supposed to French kiss my bearded girlfriend, Jesus. Imagery used in worship. Um, the, the more and more I think about it, and the more I study scripture, I think, oh, I'm not sure about some of this. And, and Good, I'm glad to hear that Matt Redman at least isn't so sure about some of this, because I can tell you, I ain't sure about it at all. In fact, I'm just downright sure that it, it's just gross and wrong. We should be singing the great hymns of the Christian faith and what Christ has done your mighty fortresses are God, that kind of stuff, rather than this, I want to lay on your breast and hear your heartbeat. And... So I'm on a learning curve. I don't have all the answers. I feel like, um, yeah, I, I feel like, uh, like a word like beautiful. You say, as a lovely song I used to love, isn't he beautiful? And I still love it. I grew up on this song. It's a vineyard song. And it, it really affected a lot of change in my life. But I revisit it now and I, I think, in the Bible, you don't really have people coming up to Jesus saying, you're beautiful. Right, exactly. And you don't, even in Revelation, before it's thrown, it's not, it's not the, the words they're using. But. Yeah, in, in the worship in Revelation, we have, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the one who is, who was, and who is to come. Not this stuff. And I thought, well, actually, the writer of this song, Isn't He Beautiful, is trying to talk about the splendor, the radiance, the brightness, perhaps, of, of God. But we're using the word beautiful, but the word beautiful in our language has a lot of other connotations. It's really mainly a romantic imagery. So I would Right, exactly. I'm not having a romance with Jesus. I would say this is beautiful news in on my own new album because it's it but I, I wouldn't too often use the word you are beautiful, God. I mean there are places, you know, in the psalm what you know, Thomas talks of seeing the beauty of the Lord. But I'm just trying to say is that we, we need to make sure things are watertight scripturally and also... Right, they need to adhere tightly to scripture. Where in the scripture do we hear about uh, hearing Jesus' heartbeat because we're lying on him and hearing his breath? Ugh, it just ugh, it creeps me out. That culturally, they mean what we think they mean. Because like you say, I might say that word, but actually has a whole different baggage for your blokey bloke who's coming into church. And like I said, I don't have all the answers. I'm not right. I have an answer. Let's just get rid of all these girly songs that make Jesus into my girlfriend. Let's just completely chuck them and go back to the hymns. 
this is a failed experiment. There's nothing wrong in saying, okay, we blew it here. Let's just go, let's go back to the hymns and, uh, and moving forward, none of these stupid girly songs are going to get through our net and, and any new songs that come in have to proclaim the great truths of Christianity and proclaim Christ and Him crucified for our sins like the old hymns do. And, uh, that other stuff we'll just consider to be, uh, a big mistake in erotic mysticism. Off that song, I'd write off some of my own songs before. I mean, let me give you an example. Let my words be few. Uh, if I'm totally honest, I regret a little bit ending the song with the line, I'm so in love with you. Right. And the reason is, I know what I mean by that. But if you put a song out there, then other people might think, actually, that just sounds a bit weird, romantic kind of... Right, I'm not in love with Jesus. That's not the kind of love I'm called to have for Christ. I'm in love with my wife. I'm not in love with Jesus. That's not what was in my heart. Maybe I should have said, I'm so in awe of you. Or it, There we go. That would be awesome. That w I'm in awe of Jesus. Mm, that's it. Why am I in awe of him? Well, let's see. I can come up with a couple of really good reasons. I'm in awe of Jesus due to the fact that he's God in human flesh. That's amazing. That he didn't, you know, that here is God in human flesh. And even though he's equal with God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing and being found in the form of a servant became obedient to death, even death on a Roman cross. Now that's something to be in awe of. And that death was for my sins and for your sins. Now that's some manly stuff right there. You know, it's a learning process. And I don't know if I'm being too candid, but. I only am because I want us to learn as a church. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. So what yeah, there we go. All right, so there's Matt Redman on uh, 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 songs that are not uh, really uh, liked by, uh, how did he put it, blokey blokes? Like this, like this thing? Ugh, man. That's the plaintive wail of a woman who's been scorned, uh, who misses her lover. I gotta take a break and go floss my brain with a, a, a you know a very red hot poker or something. You know, throw it in the fire and stick it through my nose or something. Anyway, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on today's edition or any previous edition of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. Or look me up on Facebook or follow me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough! of this sissy, pansy, turning photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. 
Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Orthodox Christianity clearly teaches God's law, which condemns our sinful nature, and clearly proclaims the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf to pay for our sinfulness. These truths of Holy Scripture are timeless and objective. However, a creeping fog known as the emergent church threatens to unravel these clear teachings by redefining the vocabulary and core beliefs of the Christian faith in terms of subjective personal feelings and experiences. That is why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to offer The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity, a book by Bob DeWay that is widely regarded as the best book available on the emergent heresy. The book is $12.95 plus $4 shipping and handling, and all proceeds directly support the Christ-centered ministry of Pirate Christian Radio. Log on today to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy of The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity. of Fighting for the Faith straight ahead here on this uh, Feels Like Fall Monday, August 31st. And we're going to talk about uh, biblical literism and the doctrine of hell. The claim from liberals and, quote, progressives is, oh, you're nothing but a Bible literalist. The funny thing is, is that there are certain things from the Bible they take literally. For instance, uh, the the biblical uh, liberals, no, the biblical liberals, is there such a thing? The liberals and the progressives and the uh, gospel reductionists, they take grace literally. They take, when, when God says, love God and love neighbor, they take that literally. Hell? Well, uh, it's obvious Christ is speaking allegorically. Sin? Uh, he's speaking allegorically. Ah, that's allegory. See, here's the deal. Uh, the, the, the fun little shell and pea game that the liberals and the progressives play is that they only take that which they, uh, they, they like from the Bible, literally. Everything else is allegory. It's, it, you know, you can somehow find a way to dismiss it. Now, I'll be the first person to tell you, by the way, the, uh, the biblical interpretive method that I use, and I think is the correct one, is the historical grammatical method. It's the idea that, uh, God in history inspired certain authors to write particular words to convey a message, and that the message actually can be understood. Yeah, I know. Hard to believe, isn't it? And uh, and where the Bible speaks poetically, there are certain things that you don't necessarily have to take it literally. For instance, let me give you an example of some poetic speech from the scriptures, uh, from Jesus Christ himself, from Matthew 23, Jesus getting ready to make his triumphal entry into Jerusalem says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her, her wings, and you would not. Now, uh, those people out there who, who like to take shots at, quote, Bible literalists, I don't know any fundamentalist Bible literalist uh, who would argue that Jesus was a big chicken man. Uh, even worse, he was actually a big hen. 
and that Jesus stood about six feet tall and had wings like a chicken, and even worse, he was a he was a female chicken. There, I don't know anyone out there that would make that case. Okay, but using the the biblical progressives, if you would, uh, and those people who take shots at literalists, the, you know, if you would you if they would consi- be consistent with their hermeneutic, if they would be consistent with their claims, and they're not, they're they're classically inconsistent. Why? Because what becomes the judge and arbiter of what's true in Scripture is not what God's word says, but their own subjective ego. If they were consistent. They would basically have to argue, well, listen, uh, because this has figurative language in it about Jesus uh, and, uh, and, you know, saying that he would gather his, uh, you know, chickens, you know, like, uh, like a, a hen gathers her little chicks. We, we can't know what this passage says. We have to figure out a way to allegorically interpret it. It doesn't make any sense at all. But uh, anyway, by way of kind of arguing this uh, from the opposing side, we've got a young guy by the name of Josh Samuelson who hangs out in that den of robbers, also known as the uh, Outlaw Preachers over at Twitter. And he's written a little piece called Taking the Bible Literally, and he's going to talk specifically about the doctrine of hell. Now, uh, Josh, from what I've been able to gather, is a, a young seminarian of Elka ilk, and uh, we read his uh, blog post. He says, I've decided to start a little series on biblical literalism. Since that seems to be at the heart of much of the disagreement in the church, I- I'll admit now that I'm not, I'm not a literalist. Well, what do you take literally from the Bible, Josh? Anything? Oh, I know. Love God and love neighbor. That we've got to take literally. But everything else, pfft, not. So much of the Bible was clearly written to be taken as allegory, hyperbole, or metaphor, etc., that I can't imagine how annoyed the authors would be if they knew their words were being taken literally. Again, I agree that there's some parts of Scripture that are not to be taken literally because it's, for instance, the Jesus is the big chicken man. That's not to be taken literally. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we're to somehow turn the Bible into a wax nose. There's certain you got to understand. There's different genres in Scripture. Some stuff is is poetic, for instance, the Psalms. Some stuff is historical narrative to be taken historically literally. Yes. Other stuff uh, is parable. You have to you have to interpret it. And what's the big interpretive method? Well, you find Christ in the Gospel in it. Uh, other stuff is apocalyptic. Let's take the book of Revelation. There are, there are pictures in the book of Revelation that are difficult to decipher. And yet there are other stuff, there's other stuff in the book of Revelation that we can take more or less literally. But again, I digress. Let me read the, continue reading. On the other hand, I don't believe in just throwing out passages I don't like. It's quite easy to just ignore something we don't like, uh, but I think the Word of God is revealed most strongly when we find the gospel hidden in a difficult passage. One of Luther's great realizations happened when he did exactly this. His understanding of external righteousness came from studying a passage that uh, that he felt he just could not accept. Um, what's funny there is is that the passage you're referring to is uh, Romans chapter 3, and it wasn't until he understood what it literally meant, but now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. 
it, it wasn't that he allegorized it. It's, it's he finally understood how to literally interpret it. But I digress. Now, this brings me to my topic today. Hell, I don't claim to be a universalist, but I don't feel a need to refute universalism either. If hell exists, I hope that no one ever goes there. My interpretation of the Bible in its context in its context suggests that there's something like hell that Jesus is talking about, something like hell. Uh, my faith doesn't really rest on this idea, so which is kind of a dumb way of putting it. Who cares if your faith rests on it? The question is, does the Bible teach it? So there's something hellish it, it, taught in the Bible, something like hell, something like hell. It's something hellish. <clears throat> we continue. Um, so, so usually I don't bother with it. If the New Testament is read literally, there is no hell. <laughs> that is a really dumb statement. If the New Testament is read literally, there is no hell. Let me repeat that to make extra clear. In a literal reading of the New Testament in Greek, hell is not mentioned. Think I'm wrong? Well, read on. Actually, dude, I read Greek, and I probably have taken more of it than you have, but we read, first of all, I ask that the reader to forget everything they think they know about hell for now. Much of Western civilization's imagery of hell comes from extra-biblical sources, especially Dante's Inferno. For a sola scriptura literalist, it would be inconsistent to apply non-scriptural descriptions. Popular methodology uh, has so permeated society that I think many sola scriptura folks don't realize where their picture of hell comes from. By the way, um, here, Josh, uh, again... I am a sola scriptura person, and I interpret the Bible literally where it's to be interpreted literally, and hell happens to be one of those places where it is to be interpreted literally. But we'll get there in a second. We'll just show you from the text. Now, as far as I've been able to find, there are two terms in the New Testament that have been mistranslated as hell in English, Hades and the Hinnom Valley, or Hadu or Gehenna in Greek. Um if other if there are others, I would be very interested to find out about them and do additional research. Yeah, actually, there is a, there is another one that you're completely biffing it on, but we'll get there. Uh, I don't know Hebrew, so I'm afraid I can't really speak to the references in the Old Testament. Again, I would be interested to hear what others have found there. Let's tackle Hades first. In the Greek worldview, Hades was seen as simply the land of the dead. Uh, Greek mythology... Uh, doesn't really speak in the dualistic terms that many modern Christians use. For the Greek religion, all people, good and bad, went to Hades after death. It's described as shadowy and misty. There is no uh, connotation of fire or of the devil with a pitchfork or anything like that, as I understand it. Uh, and again, I, I don't know Hebrew. This is roughly correlates to pre-Christian Jewish concept of Sheol, which is translated as the grave. Punishment and reward didn't factor into the Jewish con, uh, conception of, of the afterlife. Don't believe me? Well, David, Solomon, and many other heroes of the Old Testament are described as being in Sheol after death often with the term, with his ancestors. Look it up. Um, actually, the, the Hebrew term is gathered to his people, but uh, we continue. Look it up. Just read the text. As my Old Testament professor would often say, I'll admit that Hades doesn't sound too great, but it, it certainly isn't a place of eternal torture and punishment. Now, this kind of begs the question. Um, Josh, here's the deal. Hades, technically, if you really want to get really technical... Hades, yes, you can say it's 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 a place that people went in the afterlife. The Greek conception of it was a, a a place that everybody went. Hades actually was one of the Greek gods. He was the brother of Zeus. In fact, he was Zeus's elder brother, 
and uh, basically he lost in uh, <laughs> he lost to Zeus the right to uh, to be the, the 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 king of the gods. And as a result of it, his position was to become the king of the underworld or the god of the underworld. And Hades is a, just a tyrant of a man, and his job is to make sure nobody escapes from the underworld. Nobody ever, under any circumstances whatsoever. No, the dead are not to mingle with the living, and he and, and there's been people who've tried, according to Greek mythology, to outwit Hades, and uh, as a result of it, they've... Uh, some terrible things have happened to them. So Hades technically is the underworld. Now, I just want to point something out to you here. That being the case, why is it that Jesus takes up the term Hades? Okay, is Jesus trying to teach us the Greek concept of the afterlife? Uh, no, not at all. Jesus is taking up a, a term of the day, and he also uses the term Gehenna as a means of trying to uh, paint a bigger reality and I'll, I'll kind of divulge what that bigger reality is is that Jesus in his earthly teaching taught clearly that there is an eternal conscious punishment and torment that people will undergo it is reserved for those who have not faith in Christ and do not trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins the disobedient if you would those people will have an eternal, conscious torment of a hell, so to speak. And there are other terms that, uh, that Jesus uses to describe it, but we'll get there in a minute. And I want to read the rest of your uh, your, um, your statement here. Uh, that interpretation comes from another term, Hinnom Valley. A little background about the Hinnom Valley. The Hinnom Valley was near Jerusalem. This is correct. It's the city's garbage dump. Correct. Jesus uses the term Hades, he uses the term Gehenna, he refers to the Hinnom Valley as the garbage dump, okay? In the valley there was uh, a constant trash fire burning and when criminals or foreigners died in the city their bodies would be burned there. Lake of unquenchable fire, yep, there they threw sulfur, aka brimstone on the flames to keep them going. Smelly, nasty, not a good place for a weekend trip, eternal punishment. Well, I just uh, don't see it, it's just the term that they use. Now, this is where you're making your huge hermeneutical error, okay? You're saying, you, you know, just because Jesus uses the term uh, Hinnom Valley or Gehenna, or the lake of unquenchable fire, that somehow that doesn't mean it's eternal. You're not looking at all the passages here, um, Josh. But I, let me continue reading. Jesus uses the term in this way in Mark chapter 9, 43. We'll get there in a minute. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter eternal life maimed than to have two hands and go to the Hinnom Valley to the unquenchable fire. Again, that sounds pretty nasty, but if you take it literally, I don't see how you can claim that he's speaking about hell. No, he's speaking about throwing something in the trash. Better to throw your hand into the trash than to throw your whole body away. I'm not a literalist, so I'll take this to mean something like better to question a belief that leads to hatred than to allow your whole self to be consumed by hatred see now there you go you're kind of missing the whole point of the passage because you're not a literalist you refuse to see what jesus is actually teaching and as a result of it you're now allegorically interpreting it so that, that jesus is saying not to be consumed by hatred time to do some biblical work here josh uh now let me go back to what you pointed out Jesus uses terms like Hades, Hinnom Valley, and Gehenna in his description of the punishment 
uh, reserved for those who do not trust in him for the forgiveness of sins. Okay. Now, let me let me go back to the, the passage I quoted earlier, Matthew 23, 37. Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your, uh, your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Now, here Jesus is using chicken language of himself. Obviously, Jesus is not a chicken. Since, therefore, this, beca- this co- contains some poetical language, we know that we can't interpret it literally. Does that mean that we're somehow to say that Jesus, therefore, it's not, it's not true that Jesus doesn't care about the inhabitants of Jerusalem because he uses chicken language of himself? No, that's kind of to miss the point. So let's go to Mark chapter 9 and see what you're missing. Mark chapter 9, starting at verse 42, we read, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Okay, now listen. 9.42 sets the context. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So the context is those who are causing Jesus' little ones to sin. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell or the Hinnom Valley or Gehenna, okay, to the unquenchable fire. Now, Jesus here is making it very clear. It is better to enter life than to go to eternal punishment. And he's using terms to describe what that eternal punishment is about. Again, hell is a conscious, eternal torment and punishment for those who do not have faith in Christ. So he's using the term Hinnom uh, uh, Valley and the unquenchable fire as terms to describe what that eternal conscious punishment is like. Okay? But we'll get we'll get we'll back this up from some other passages. He says, "If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life. Enter life. Notice again, life. Lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. Now, something here. This is important. All of the people listening to Jesus' teaching at this point, they were all quote alive. So when Jesus says it's better for you to enter life lame, what does he mean by enter life? Again, this is life eternal, and I'll back it up from some other pa- uh, passages. Then for you to enter into hell, or to be thrown in, you know, basically discarded, like, you know, into uh, the trash heap. He says, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God, enter the kingdom of God with one eye, than with two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So here in this passage, the one you're quoting, Again, he's talking about sin, the things that cause you to sin. And he's talking, he's describing now two different realities. One reality is eternal life. Otherwise, and he uses a metaphor for it, the kingdom of God. Then to enter into hell. And he describes it as a trash heap, as an unquenchable fire. And he's describing a future reality. Okay? We continue. I'm going to back this up from some other passages of Scripture. Luke chapter 16, starting at 19. Jesus is telling us a story. This is not a parable, by the way. He's not telling this as a parable. Usually he proceeds as parables like, well, the kingdom of God is like, or things like that. Jesus just throws out the story. In Luke chapter 19, he says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, 
who feasted sumptuously every day. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. That's the Old Testament uh, concept of Sheol. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment... He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on us and send Lazarus to dip his, uh, the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. Now, Jesus here, you're sitting there going, oh, this can't be taken literally. Jesus here is describing an eternal conscious punishment. And on top of it, he's describing an eternal conscious punishment in a place where there's torment and unquenchable fire. This is important. This is where we get our concepts of hell from. Not from Dante's Inferno, but from Jesus' description of this place where Lazarus goes, uh, not Lazarus, uh, the rich man goes, and it's hot, he's in torment, he's in anguish, and we read, but Abraham said, child, remember that in your lifetime you received the good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. That you in your lifetime received good things and Lazarus, uh, and you are in anguish. Okay, I'm sorry. <clears throat> but Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. And Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides, all this between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment." But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced that someone should rise from the dead. And I'm going to point this out here. This story that Jesus tells, okay, on the surface, you can sit there and say, well, wait a second. I mean, this is kind of silly. I mean, how can the people in, in, you know, in this torment talk to Abraham? That can't be real. Well, how do you know what can and can't be real when it comes to the afterlife? How can you know? You, you, have you been there? I think Jesus, being God in human flesh, has a right to decide these things. And then you sit there and say, well, obviously, this is a story about how rich people oppress the poor. I mean, so Lazarus went to heaven because he was a poor person. Wait a second. No. Scripture is clear. Salvation is by grace through faith alone. Anybody who is saved is one who trusts in Christ for their salvation. Right? So we can't say that, uh, that the poor man, Lazarus, went to heaven because uh, he was a poor person. There is no virtue in being poor. Poverty is not... The, is not the thing that decides whether or not you enter into eternal life. Not at all. In fact, if, when we get to uh, Matthew 25 here shortly, we're going to see that, uh, that there, the sheep are commended for feeding the poor. Okay? 
So poverty is not a virtue by which you are saved. It's faith. So Lazarus has faith and he was a poor man on top of it. The rich man had not faith and worse, he oppressed and ignored the poor in front of him. The scriptures are clear. A true religion, a true Christian, somebody who truly has faith in Christ does the work of feeding the poor. How can they not? They're Christians. God cares for them deeply. A true Christian uses his wealth to care for the poor, to feed them, to clothe them, to care for them. That's what true Christians do. So here we've got this story of this poor man who has faith, and he goes to be with the Lord, with Abraham in this particular story. And what we also learn here is that there's a place called, you know, there's there's a place of torment. And, and the rich man describes it as a place of eternal conscious torment with an unquenchable fire. That's the description here. Okay. And so he wants Lazarus to go and warn his brothers so that they won't end up there. So that they would repent. So that they would repent. And the, the kicker in the story is, is that he said he thought that they would repent if somebody rose from the dead to go tell him. And Abraham says, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, which pre- proclaim Christ, by the way, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Referring to Jesus himself, who is the one who did rise from the dead and calls all men everywhere to repent. Now, Revelation chapter 14, we read, Another angel, uh, verse 9, by another angel, a third followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or, or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever received the mark of its name. So here in Revelation chapter 14, we have another picture of this eternal conscious torment. And here it's it's talking about those who receive the mark of the beast and worship uh, the beast uh, from uh, Revelation chapter 13 and 14. And it says that they, they will, they're torment and <laughs> they will be, they're tormented in the presence of God and the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb forever and ever. This is not Dante's Inferno. This is the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 19, we hear, and after this I, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of the great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Interesting picture of the uh, of hell, isn't it? And they're rejoicing and praising the Lord, God, the Almighty One, because he is tormenting and punishing the great prostitute forever and ever. Interesting thing to praise God about, isn't it? But see, that's the thing. We can praise God 
when he sends people to hell because his judgments are are just. They are not unjust. And we can praise and thank God that he's sending people to hell. Kind of a weird way of thinking about it, isn't it? But that's what we read here in Revelation chapter 9. Revelation chapter 20, uh, verse 10, 14, and 15, we read, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire. Okay? Again, this is a, this is the descriptor that we get of, of hell. It is described in the book of Revelation as the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. It's not using the term Hades. It's not using the term Gehenna. It's using the term Lake of Fire. In fact, hold on a second here. Let me pull up Revelation chapter 20 in my Bible and uh, get there in the Greek. Let me see. Uh, the devil was thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. Uh, there we go. The uh, Limnon to Puros. That's the term. Lake of fire. Not Hades. Not Gehenna. Not Hinnom Valley. Instead, lake of fire. And then when you read this in the book of Revelation and you hear that the lake of fire is where the devil and his demons go and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever in front, uh, you know, in the presence of God. Then you begin to realize, ah, I see Jesus in, in describing hell as Gehenna or the Hinnom Valley those are just word pictures and the real thing is the lake of fire that we see here in revelation so what he's doing here is basically jesus has promised the lake of fire for the devil his angels and all those who reject him and refuse to believe and receive the forgiveness of sins and the picture of that is the is the hinnom valley that's the picture the, the hinnom valley is the word picture the reality is the lake of fire described in revelation Verse 14 of chapter 20, then we read, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You think that's that's important? Well, then we get to Matthew 25. Now, in Matthew 25, we have three stories of the end i'm going to read two of them the first is the story of the parable of the ten virgins i'm going to skip that for today for time's sake but we're going to uh, read here matthew 25 starting at verse 14 listen carefully for it'll be like a man going on a journey who called his servants um wait a second here um yep the, the kingdom of god will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property to one he gave five talents to another two to another one to each uh, according to his ability then he went away he who had received uh, the five talents went at once and traded with them and he made five talents more so also he who had two talents made two talents more but he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. 
And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Okay. So here we got reward. Enter into the joy of your master. And he, and he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I've made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you did not, uh, where you, you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what's yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gathered where I have scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take this talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more, and he who and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be neat weeping and gnashing of teeth. So here we've got uh, this wicked servant. He's being cast into outer darkness, and it's described as a place of eternal torment, a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay? It's important. And Jesus says, in case you didn't catch it the first time, let me tell you another story. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory... And all the angels, this is Matthew 25, verse 31, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd, a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. I've said it before, I'll say it again. This is a picture of the day of judgment and this is pretty much how it's going to go down. And the separation takes place by what they are, not by what they've done. Only after what they are separated by what they are is what they've done brought to bear. Okay. So sheep, they're separated by nature. From the goats, separated by their nature. Goats are unbelievers. Sheep are those who have faith in Christ, and that faith is given to him as a gift. We read, Then the king will say to those on his right, the sheep, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. Now notice, okay, here, sheep do sheepy things. You do what you do because you are what you are. If you are a Christian, you do good works. Plain and simple. And what did these people do? Were they poverty stricken like the, the poor, like Lazarus? No. They had, and what, what they had, they, they used to clothe the poor, to feed the, the, the hungry, to clothe the naked, to visit the prisoner. There's no virtue in being poor at all. Okay? Instead, okay, you you can be a poor person, completely destitute of anything, and and completely still trust in Christ. In that, you are rich. So we read, I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him. Notice that they're declared to be righteous. Saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? 
they, they don't even realize that they were doing these things. That's because you just do what you do because you are what you are. And when, uh, and, and when do we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And, and when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, well, truly, I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Where is this, where is this picked up again? Revelation. The lake of fire. Right? The limnon tupurus. The lake of fire. Prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry. You gave me no food. I was thirsty. You gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. All the things they didn't do. Then they will answer, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick and in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them, listen carefully, truly I say to you, as you did to, uh, you did not do to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Verse 46. And these, the goats, will go away to, into eternal punishment. That's another phrase for it. Not Hinnom Valley, not Hades, not Gehenna. But eternal punishment. Hold on, let me pull this up in my uh, Greek New Testament, Matthew 25, uh, verse 46. Sorry, hang on a second here. 25, 46. Okay, into, okay, so, and then he, th these will go away to eternal. Antoi ace kalasin ionion. Colossin, by the way, uh, from the uh, Greek word kolossis, uh, infliction of suffering or pain in chastisement. So they're going to go into eternal, basically suffering for eternity. They will go into eternal punishment and the righteous, they will go into zoan ionion, into life eternal. So Matthew 25, 46 makes it perfectly clear. If you want to deny the existence of eternal punishment, that's what? It's eternal conscious punishment. You want to, you want to deny it because you're going to play word games because Jesus was using word pictures when it comes to Gehenna and the Hinnom Valley? Well, Jesus goes on to describe eternal punishment as the lake of fire. We, we see this in Revelation chapter 19 and 20 and he pairs the two together, eternal punishment and eternal life. You want to deny eternal punishment? Then you also have to deny eternal life. Because here in Matthew 25, 46, Jesus makes it clear that they, the goats go away to eternal punishment, that's the lake of fire, and the righteous to eternal life. Plain and simple. You want to deny the existence of hell? You might as well deny the existence of eternal life too because in Matthew 25, 46, the two are inseparably connected. To deny the one is to deny the other. And yeah, that's to be taken literally because some sections of scripture most certainly are to be taken literally. You need to go back, Josh, and you need to study your Bible more. You've been fed a pack of lies. 
All right, we are up on our sermon review today, and uh, we've got a doozer of a sermon review pa- uh, lined up for you today. Uh, so it's time to play our sermon review music. From the good, the bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. Today's sermon is entitled, In the Heat of the Night, preached by a pastor by the name of Rich Wilkerson of Trinity Church in Miami, Florida. This one is, well, I think this is going to qualify as ugly. I, I, in fact, I don't even have words to describe it at this point. You're just going to have to listen patiently, uh, which might be hard to do. All right, we're going to kill the music. Yeah, thank you. And we're going to get on to the actual sermon itself. So uh, without any further ado, here is um, Pastor Rich Wilkerson, Trinity Church in Miami, Florida, in the heat of the night. short years of living that there are hundreds of ways that God leads you but there's two that I'm really familiar with oh boy we're off to a bad start already (laughs) there's uh, there's hundreds of ways that God leads you but there's two that I'm familiar with what are you talking about there rich one way that he leads you is he gives you a dream Full of passion. Now, when I say dream, I'm not saying... What? Maybe... How about if he leads me through God's word? As the scripture says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Maybe it's that God leads me through his written word. It's right there in the Bible. Oh, boy. You were sleeping and you had a dream. I mean that... He speaks to your heart about something He wants you to do. There's a dream that's placed in your heart. What if I don't have any such thing? What are you talking about? And with this dream comes passion. And with the passion comes every step of the way that you're going to take over the next 20 years. The 5-year mark, the 10-year mark, the 15-year mark, the 20-year mark. And He gives you a pile of cash to start off with to see it happen. And you're like, you're familiar with this way? Oh boy. Last name is usually Bill Gates Jr. 
or Emilio Estefan Jr. or Wayne Heisinger Jr. And unfortunately for me, some may say, that's not the way I found the direction of God to be. In fact, it's never happened exactly that way for me. I've heard about it happening for others, but not for me. The other way that I'm familiar with I'm familiar with this second way based upon my personal experience in life. Okay, he just said... The second way God leads, he gives you a dream, some kind of vision that he wants you to fulfill. He gives you no particulars. He just said he was familiar with that first way, but he's also familiar with this... Oh, man. Uh, This isn't even a biblical topic at this point. This guy's just making stuff up. Welcome to the church of just making stuff up, and we'll just call it biblical, because that's what we're going to do. We're going to, we just make stuff up. No, Folks, this is why expository Bible teaching is so important. The pastor needs to open the text more, I would even say probably more importantly at this point, to save and protect the sheep. There ought to be a lectionary imposed on the pastor. Here's the text that you're going to preach on for the next three years. And when you're done with that, you're going to preach on them all over again. So that you don't get to make things up. And we're going to make sure that you cover all the major important things in God's word. Those of you who think the lectionary is restrictive. Yeah, it is restrictive. It puts a big restriction on the pastor and makes him preach God's word. And it protects you sheep. We sheep from from them details there's no strategy and certainly there is no cash and all he gives you is a brief information to start and you step out of the boat hoping the water under your feet will turn to cement and you start that's the way that i have man unbelievable uh, yet another allegorical interpretation of uh, Peter walking on the water. have most known the will of God to be for my life and his direction. His direction. Today, we start this new series called Heat. And let me say this, that this series called Heat starts with the message today entitled, In the Heat of the Night. Now, when you think about nighttime... Yeah, you know, uh, Rich, why is it that I think that after listening to this sermon, you really you need to worry about heat? If you don't know what I'm referring to, go back to the previous segment of Fighting for the Faith. You usually think about night as lit up. Like, when you think of tonight, tonight, this Sunday night, you will think of it with light. At your house, you're going to turn lights on in the inside where the darkness is, right? You'll get in your car to drive somewhere to get a bite or to get some groceries for the next week. And when you get in your car, you'll turn your lights on so you'll be able to see the path in front of you. When you walk out of Trinity Church at night, like this coming Tuesday night at Rendezvous, you will walk out into this fully lit parking lot and you're excited and there's all kinds of fun and it's exciting because you know that the light is there to brighten your night. But if you think of the nighttime without light, if you're not careful, you can start to become somewhat fearful because you're not really sure what may be out there if it's pitch dark. Did you know? 
that the Navy SEALs, and by the way, I won't make this mistake in this service. Last night, I made the terrible mistake of saying that the Navy SEALs are our highest, most technical, most trained warriors in all the branches of the U.S. military. Oh, they were yelling at me last night in service. So anyway, I will say this. The Navy SEALs are just about as high as you can possibly get. They are well trained. And part of their training includes, towards the end of their training, before they become full-fledged Navy SEALs, they are dropped somewhere at night out in the ocean, off a plane or off a helicopter with a parachute, and they're dropped seven miles off of the coast with nothing but a compass, and they're told to swim to shore, and once they get to shore, to muster because they're going to make enemy invasion in the dark. Now, you can imagine, folks. It's one thing to jump out of a plane at night it's another thing to know that you're going to be seven miles from shore and that you've got to swim seven miles with no rowboat or no life jacket. It's another thing to think about what may be in the water in the dark as if you could do anything if it was light and then that you're hoping to get to shore and you're not going the wrong... Does this sermon illustration even have a point? Come on. And once you get to shore, you muster, and in the dark, you put your night vision goggles up to your eyes, and you invade enemy territory in the dark. Get them in the dark! And the reason we always think of night as lit up is because when we think of night as just night with no light, We're wondering, is that a Navy SEAL? What is that noise? What was that? Oh my! Oh! Because you're not really sure what's in the dark. And if you're not really sure what's out there, fear can set in. Are you... Oh no, another one of these sermons. Oh man. Gasp! Fear could set in. What was that? We're in the... That was a long way to go for that. Okay. Catching my drift. When fear sets in, all of a sudden, if you're only there for one reason, that's peace and safety, all of a sudden, stress can begin to develop. In fact... Yes, we're going to conquer those terrible... that blight on humanity. Fear and stress. Oh, that's terrible. Maybe this morning you sit in this room and God has given you a vision in your life and you already messed it up through poor living and wrong choices. Oh man, la la, what vision, how would I know if God gave me a vision for my life? How would I know this? Some of you are hoping for a new vision even though you're halfway through life. You'd like a fresh start. Could I get a vision redo? (sighs) You know, can I go, hey, uh, God, can I have a mulligan? I don't like the vision that you gave me. Can I I get a different one? For heaven's sakes. The Lord. Some of you in this room have just received a vision with passion from God. (laughs) Do you folks even read your Bible? I'm sure you're going to open it up, but why do I feel like the Bible is just like maybe not even tertiary in your life. Maybe it's quadriary. 
you're wondering, what do I do next? And the stress is setting in because when you're moving with God in His direction, you don't know what the next step is. It becomes an evolutionary process in the following of God's will. Where is this taught in the Bible again? The evolutionary process of learning how to follow God's will. Is this clearly taught anywhere in the Bible? Or are you just making this up and kind of somehow inserting it into the text? Unbelievable. It evolves. It doesn't just happen overnight. It evolves as you step out in faith. Let me show you a story where this evolution process was very much a part of what took place. Oh, I can hardly wait. I mean, so far, the just the intro portion of this sermon means we're going to be off in Lululand. I mean, this is just going to be all kinds of mythology. Here we go. Exodus chapter 13, verses 17 and 18, verses 21 and 20. All right, Exodus chapter 13. Hang on, I'm going to get there in my Bible. We'll cross-check to see how... Uh, Rich here is handling this particular passage of Scripture. We continue. Me too. Exodus chapter 13, verses 17 and 18, verses 21 and 22. This is the story of the Israelites after 430 years getting out of Egypt's bondage. Now we know this. The Bible says, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though... That was shorter. For God said if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. Let me see if I have this right. You are reading the very passage of Scripture that discusses the Passover. And you're missing all the important elements. Of, and somehow this is an example of the evolutionary process of learning how to follow the vision that God has placed in your heart. <clears throat> Let me uh, read the passage for you in context. By the way, there's three really important rules for biblical interpretation. They are context, context, and context. We read um, uh, the verse 1, The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me every firstborn male. The firstborn offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether man or animal. Then Moses said to the people, Commemorate this day, the day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand, eating nothing containing yeast. Today, in the month of Abib, you are leaving. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hivites, and Jebusites, the land that he swore to your forefathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you are to observe this ceremony in this month. For seven days eat bread made without yeast, and on the seventh day hold a festival to the Lord. Eat unleavened bread uh, unleavened bread during those seven days. Nothing with yeast in it is to be seen among you, nor shall any yeast be seen anywhere within your borders. On that day... Tell your sons, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. This observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord is to be on your lips. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. You must keep this ordinance at the appointed time year after year. After the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives it to you as he promised on oath to you and your forefathers, you are to give over to the Lord the first 
offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey. But if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. In the days to come, when your sons ask ask you, what does this mean? Say to him, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed every firstborn in Egypt, both of man and animal. This is why I sacrifice to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my uh, firstborn sons. And it is to it is, and it will be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter, for God said if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt armed for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the sons of Israel swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. After leaving Sukkoth, they camped at the Etham on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud, guiding them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither pillar of cloud by day nor pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. So here we've just read all of Exodus chapter 13. What is this all about? This really is t- talking about the the Passover. And what's the Passover? It's the night in which the angel of the Lord passed over the homes of the Israelites who were in bondage and slavery to the Egyptians. And the reason they were the, the reason the angel of the Lord passed over them is because they had sacrificed a spotless lamb and sprinkled its blood over the doorpost of the house, the entrance to the house. And what happened is is that the firstborn of Egypt were killed. This was a big deal. God was mightily delivering them out of the hands of, of slavery, out of the hands of the Egyptians, and he was doing so by bringing judgment on Egypt and Pharaoh's hard-hearted wickedness to not obey the the one true God. Basically, what we see in Exodus there is a battle between two gods. One a false god and the other the true god. Let's see what this guy does with it because apparently this is about learning how to... This is about the evolution of learning how to enact the vision that God has put in your heart. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt armed for battle. I love that line. Don't forget that line. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud. To... Now, you are aware there, uh, Rich, that they this was the last of, what, ten plagues here? And God was judging the, the Egyptians all along, right? You, you are aware of the whole... You ever see the movie, The Ten Commandments? I mean, that might help you out here. Guide them on their way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people in other words for 40 years this pillar of fire by night never left the people of Israel. 40 straight 
years, seven nights a week for 40 years. The fire by night was there for the people of God. This is a very interesting sequence. Now you say, Pastor, why do you call this in the heat of the night? Because when you talk about finding the will of God and the direction for your life, not knowing which step to take next, just doing what He tells you right now, it can become very stressful. It can be somewhat nerve-wracking. What does Exodus chapter 13 have to do with learning the the, the will that God has and the vision that God has for my life? It doesn't teach me nothing about that. What are you talking about? If you're not careful. And that brings on the heat. As in, the heat is building. As in, things are heating up, if you know what I mean. (laughs) No, I don't know what you mean. What are you talking about? (sighs) Uh, by the way, this sermon might prove uh, that it's important to have your pastor randomly drug screened. Has anyone ever asked you, how are things going down there in Miami? And you answered, well, things are heating up and you didn't mean the weather. You see, you're in the middle of moving in God's will just one foot in front of the next without this full detail of what's coming 20 years down the road. That's where the Israelites were on this historic night. Moses had the Israelites move in faith. In other words, they had a limited plan from God that they started with. Now, when they start, you can read all. They had a what? A limited plan from God? What are you talking about? God laid out a pretty clear thing here. He's going to judge the Egyptians, kill the firstborn. Pharaoh's going to say, get out of there. And I want you, and God's basically told him to go ask the Egyptians for anything. And, and he basically made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the Israelites. And they were going to march out victorious after Pharaoh was defeated by God. Seems pretty, pretty intric- intricate to me. All through Exodus chapter 12, you'll never see one spot in Exodus 12 where the Bible says, now, you know, one thing you're going to have to watch out for is the Philistines. Now, when you do get out of there, watch out. So what? Oh, man. Do you think the Israelites were... Oh, man. Uh. For the Red Sea, you're going to have to swim 100 miles across. Uh, you don't see any of that. There could be danger out there in the dark. You don't see any of that. All you hear from God saying to Moses to tell the people is this. Kill a lamb. And there's not detail about how they're getting out, but there is detail how he wants the lamb killed and how he wants it cooked. Isn't that just like God? All of us go, what are you talking about? Dude, you are totally messing this story up. That is the most ridiculous and absurd interpretation I have ever heard of Exodus 13 and the Passover. How are we getting out? I don't know, God. Who gives a rip how we kill it, how we eat it? We want to get out of here. What's that all about? Kill the lamb. Eat the lamb. Put the blood on the doorpost. Wait. We're getting out of here. Oh boy, hang on a second here. Why do I think I need to go and get a little bit more context? Well, let's see here. 
All right. Let's see. Uh, Exodus chapter 12, a little bit more context. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. And if any household is too small for a whole lamb, uh, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with each person, with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take from uh, from them sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the fourteenth day of the month, when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides of the tops of the door frames of the houses where eat uh, where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or, uh, or cooked in water, but roasted over the fire, head, legs, and inner parts. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some of it is left, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked in your belt, your sandals on your feet, and with your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day that you are to commemorate for generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, as a lasting ordinance. For seven days you are to eat bread made without yeast, and on the first day remove the yeast from your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast in it uh, from the first day through the seventh must be cut off. On the first day hold a sacred assembly, and on another one, the seventh, do not work at all on these days except to prepare food for everyone to eat. That is all you may do. Celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, because on because it was on the very day that I brought you out of uh, brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance from generations to come. So as I'm seeing this, um, there's quite a lot of detail about the Passover, and it's really clear that God's going to judge the gods of Egypt and strike down the firstborn of all of the house of Egypt. And that God was going to bring them out, uh, basically march them out like an army. So what, whatever this interpretation that Rich is giving us here doesn't even take into consideration what the text actually says. He's omitting some very important parts of this particular historical event. Um, and uh, the, his interpretation is fanciful at best. That's the whole deal. So you're, well, what's the plan? Kill the lamb. <laughs> eat the lamb. Wait. Put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. We're getting out of here. How weird is that? Are those the weirdest directions to moving up in life you've ever heard in your life? Those were not directions for moving up in life. What are you talking about? Those are the directions that God gave Israel when he set them free from the bondage of slavery. That's not about moving up in life. That's about God's redemption and rescue. Oh, this is a perverted use of that passage. Are those the weirdest directions when you've been enslaved for 430 years by the Egyptians? We're getting out tonight. Really? How are we doing it? Kill the lamb. 
eat the lamb, put the blood on the doorpost, wait, we're getting out of here. That was it. That's all they got. And I can see three million Jewish people standing out there. They don't have CNN for direction. They don't have the radio show for direction. There, there's no wattage out there. There's no this is the blind leading the blind. This is an abomination. No massive amplification. There's no bullhorns. They can see about a mile away, Moses is standing up there with about 14 of his leaders. And he says to the leaders, tell them to kill the lamb. No, he said God's going to, to, to march them out tonight. You forget the part about the marching orders? Oh, man. Eat the lamb, put blood on the doorpost, wait, we're getting out of here. They go tell about 14 of their friends, tell them to kill the lamb, eat the lamb, put the blood on the doorpost, wait, we're getting out of here. And it spreads through Israel in the night just like that. Kill the lamb, eat the lamb, put the blood on the doorpost, wait, we're getting out of here. That's it! That's it! And I don't see any disagreement. I don't see any argument. I don't see the 14 or the 28 or the 35 leaders. How many ever there were? I don't see any of them go, you know, can we vote on that? Because that seems like the wackiest plan we've ever... Could we... We just break them into seven committees right now and we'll give some detailed uh, experiences for the committees to go through and in about three hours they can come back and give to us their findings and, and how the lambs are doing and are they ready to be killed and then we'll report, report back. No, 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 no. There were no questions that night. It was going to happen in a night. In the heat of the night, the pressure's building. After 430 years, they're getting out tonight. You talk about heat. And so all we see them do is do what God says. They did it. Exactly what God said. They killed the lamb. They put the blood of the doorpost. They waited. They ate. And God let them out. Now, friends, when this happens, when they obey God, all heaven breaks loose on Egypt that night. I mean, all heaven breaks loose on Egypt. For the first time in history, the Passover angel shows up. And he goes across every house in all of Egypt. And the homes where there's no blood on the doorpost, the Bible says he kills the oldest child in that home. And all of a sudden, as this is happening, the Israelis are waiting. They've eaten the lamb. They're waiting. They're behind closed doors. The blood is on their doorpost. And they begin to hear these moans, these groans, these By the way, this would be a perfect place to preach the gospel. The Israelites... By faith, by faith, they obey God and they sacrifice a spotless lamb and don't break any of its bones as God commanded and they place the blood of the lamb over the doorpost and God doesn't visit their house with wrath but mercifully passes by. This is a perfect place to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ because every single one of us who are saved by grace through faith because of what Christ has done for us on the cross, Jesus is the spotless lamb and it's his blood covering us that protects us from the destroyer and leads us out of slavery, slavery to sin, death, and the devil. Oh, man.
spouts these screams as they begin to realize, yes, it's true, the death angel, the Passover angel has passed over. They haven't seen the blood, so they've killed the oldest son. The next thing that happens is these Egyptians start coming to the homes of the Israelis, pounding on their doors. Get out of here, would you please, people, please, get out of here. Leave us alone. Go! And right there, a little more direction comes. God says, when they ask you to go, ask them for money. <laughs> Exodus twelve twenty six. You can you can read it yourself. At, see see how the plan starts to evolve. But how are we going to leave? We got no money. Oh, when they tell you to go, ask them for cash. Please leave our borders. Get out of here. We you people are killed. All right, we're ready to leave. Can you all give us some cash? We're going to need some cash. We need, we need stuff. We can't just leave with nothing. We've got to have some cash. We've got herds and cattle and all this, but we need some cash. And the Bible doesn't say they took a couple bucks from every house. The Bible says every home unloaded everything they had. Uh, Exodus chapter 12 verse 26 says they plundered Egypt. They stripped Egypt of its money on the way out the door. Kill the lamb. Eat the lamb, put the blood on the doorpost, wait, you're going to get out of here, and they're going to say, get out of here. You're going to say, ask for money, and they're going to give you all their money. One night. See how that works? Did they know they were getting cash? No, all they knew was, kill the lamb, eat the lamb, wait, put the blood on the doorpost, you're getting out of here. But as they move in God... Then God says, oh, by the way, ask him for money. They stripped him of money. Oh, that's good. We're doing better. They get enough money to do anything they want to do for the next 40 years. That's the kind of dough they left with men and women. Now, what happens next? Oh, boy. Why do I feel like this is heading off into word, faith, heresy land? On the way out, they're armed for battle. Notice this is all about law. Obedience, obedience, obedience. Law, law, not not the obedience of faith, which is what the Israel... Oh, man. The Bible says they armed for battle. They had no clue what battle was. They hadn't fought in 430 years. They didn't have a trained army. But they left with their swords and their spears and their shields and whatever they had. They didn't know what war was. That's ridiculous. They left armed for battle. No way were they ready for the Philistines, but they left armed for battle. And I'm saying this morning, men and women, as God begins to lead you to that vision, as you step out of the boat, as you... Oh, man, this is just ridiculous. Here we go, another allegorical interpretation here. And now coming back to the, the supposed vision that God's giving you. Read your Bible and chuck the whole vision thing the lamb, as you eat the lamb, as you wait, we're getting out of here, as the cash comes, as the thing begins to unfold and evolve around you, always keep your armor on. Always be armed for battle. You say, Pastor Rich, what are you talking about? 
not talking about physical spears. I'm not talking about physical swords. I'm talking about what the Bible says in the New Testament where Bible says in Ephesians chapter 6, we realize that we are not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against principalities in high places. Therefore, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand when the going gets tough. Put on the helmet of salvation. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Put on the belt of truth. Take the... Stand when the going gets tough. Oh, I, I know. We're, we're slaying the, uh, the demons that would come against the vision that God's placed in your life. Or heart, or wherever he puts it. In my vision inbox. Shield of faith. Put the shoes of the gospel of preparation of peace on your feet. And Why don't you preach the gospel? What, you, mean, you just mentioned the... Uh, never mind. I don't think this guy knows what it is. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and leave armed for battle. Armed for war. The devil will attack. I want everybody to ask me a question right now, out loud. I want you to ask this question. Pastor, will the devil attack me? Say that right now. Yes, he will. Actually, the devil is attacking you right now, those of you who were there listening to this sermon. The devil did attack you. He's, de he's attacking you with deception. He's attacking you by taking your, your eyes off of Christ, our spotless Passover lamb. He's attacking you by feeding you this false doctrine. <sighs> Man. I'm not thinking about that. I'm not wondering about it. I'm just telling you, yes, He will. So whenever you're moving in the will of God and the heat of the night, the stress is there and you're moving forward, always move forward armed for battle that you may be able to take the devil out when he attacks you. You don't run from him. You run him over by the power of God. Hallelujah. I don't need to run the devil over. Christ did that for me. He conquered Satan on the cross. He's a defeated foe. Oh, man. What are you talking... I know. There's the devil. His job is... See, in this world, the, 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 this false, fictitious world of spirituality this guy is subscribed to, see, this, Satan's not trying to send you to hell. Satan is the big person out there trying to prevent God's the vision that God's placed in your heart to, for, to coming to fruition. Satan is the vision snatcher. See, his job is to snatch and destroy the vision God placed on your life. You know, the one where you have all the cash and the big car and the and the the uh, the fourteen room, you know, the fourteen bedroom house with you know the seventy seven thousand square feet and and the Olympic sized swimming pool. <sighs> and God says to Moses, "Now listen." Don't take them the shortcut through the Philistine territory. That's a massive army. They haven't fought for 430 years. They could get scared, all right, and run back to Egypt. Take them the long way around the Philistines so they won't have to fight right away. Take them to the Red Sea. <laughs> now, <laughs> let me say, okay, let me, here's what the Bible says in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Wait a second. Isn't that one of the lies that Perry Noble said that was... Never mind. Yeah, it's, it's not even worth mentioning. But when you are tempted, 
He will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. This would be actual temptation to sin, to disobey God. Oh boy. So listen to this little truth. I'm not going to lead them through the Philistine territory. I'm going to take them a long way around Philistine territory to the Red Sea. Now, the truth is, just out of the gate, just out of Egypt, they couldn't face the Philistines or the Red Sea immediately. But God says, if I can take them around the Philistines, by the time they get to the Red Sea, there'll be enough faith to get them across. Wrong. Wrong. And that, that doesn't say that anywhere in the Scripture. You just made that up and stuck it in the Scripture. It's not in there anywhere, and I defy anybody to show me the Scripture where God said, I'm going to take them around the long way so that by the time they get to the Red Sea, they have enough faith. Unbelievable. All right? Because to me, the Red Sea would be as scared as going through the Philistine army. Okay, everybody in? Run? Okay? Yeah, by the way, uh, how, how did that whole Red Sea incident go, by the way? When the Israelites got there, did they have all kinds of faith and did they just trust that God was going to rescue them? Somehow I don't think so. Hang on a second here. Let's find the Red Sea incident. Uh, let's see. What passage is that? All right, let's see. Israelites looked up, terrified. Okay, here we go. <laughs> okay, here we go. Exodus chapter 14. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We've let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariots made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other uh, chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites and were marching boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi-Harioth, opposite of Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and they cried out uh, they cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us into the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. So Exodus chapter 14 just completely contradicted what Rich here said. Um, God nowhere said, I'm going to take them all the way, you know, by way of the long run, because they're going to have enough faith when they get to the Red Sea. Hogwash. That is a, that is nothing but a pack of just total satanic lies. Did the Israelites have a great load of faith when they got to the Red Sea? I don't think so. These, these questions that they were asking Moses don't show a lot of faith. Let's see, was it because there was no graves in Egypt that you brought us out here? Didn't we say, leave us in Egypt alone? It would be better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert? Yeah, those are those are questions of great faith. Unbelievable. A roof as we swim. Go. No, that's not good. Carry your babies. Get your camels. Swim. Go. That'd be more daunting than the Philistines. 
But by the time they get to the Red Sea, I'll give them faith to get across. You see, I'm not going to put too much on you is what God is saying. I'm going to give you light for your day. I'm going to give you enough light to get through your day. I'm going to head you down a path that will help you. You'll get through the whole thing. Now, everything that I have told you so far, church, happens in the heat of the night on the... Yeah, the, the Trinity Church there in Miami, Florida, you might want to stay away from that one. It's the church of we're just going to make stuff up. Same night! Lambs are being slain at night. Meals are being eaten at night. Blood has been posted on doors at night. Waiting. Quiet, children. Quiet. At night. Death angel shows up. Screams of Egyptian people having lost sons and daughters at night. All of a sudden, pounding on the door. Please get out of our country at night. Here's our money. Take it. Go. At night. God's provision given by their captors at night. God steers them around the trouble at night. And then something happens. They get out. They obeyed God. They got out. And what happens next? Pillar of fire at night shows up. Now, I think it would have been more helpful if God would have started the night by saying, all right, all of my people, this is going to be the greatest night of your lives. You are hearing me speak to you as I speak right now. I am now placing in your sight line fire by night. It will now hover over you for the next 40 years. It will give you all kinds of trust, faith, hope, courage. We've got some wild things to do. To me, that would have gotten things started better. But instead, God goes, kill the lamb, eat the lamb, put the blood on the doorpost, wait, we're getting out of here. The weirdest instructions in history. That's how we're getting out of 430 years of bondage. They did it. You see, obedience is always better than sacrifice. If you just up front believe. Well, there we go. Obedience. There, Folks, um, Rich, do you obey? You have no idea what the purpose of God's law is, do you? Romans makes it clear the purpose of God's law is to show us our sin, to make us aware of our sinfulness, show us our need for a Savior. You know, Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb, law, 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 no gospel in this at all, lots of twisted, completely mangled text, unbelievable. They did it, and then after they had done everything to get out of the country, then God sets a pillar of fire in the sky to guide them in the dark, which is their scariest time of the day, nighttime. It's when things heat up the most, when there's no light 
to lighten the darkness. That's when things heat up. In the heat of the night, He posts this massive pillar of light for 40 solid years. It never leaves them when they are at their deepest level of sin, camped at the foot of Mount Sinai. They believe God has left them, that Moses is gone forever. They strip themselves naked. They go into mass orgies. They are bowing to golden calves, which the prophet has set up for them. The light remains. You see, friends, it's true today. Even when you're unfaithful to God, God will always be faithful to you. You can travel down some side dark pathway, but on the main highway, He'll keep His light station. You'll never be too far away to see the light hanging midair from God. Now, what is the pillar of... Oh, man. <laughs> Whew! <laughs> I just, I, there's nothing to say to this. I mean, completely unfounded assertions. We're just making stuff up. Again, this guy needs to, somebody needs to go and visit this guy unannounced and make him pee in a bottle and they need to check him for narcotics. Top fire teaches. A couple things and we got to go home. First of all, the pillar of fire teaches us this. When you're seeking... God's will. If you'll do what you know to do, there will always be continued direction from God till you're home. Really? That's what the pillar of fire teaches us? Really? And just how faithful were these Israelites? The ones who died in the desert? Uh, oh man, just uh, unbelievable. The ones who cried out, is it better for... It would have been better for us to die in Egypt where there are no graves. In oh, man. I'm not talking about till you get back to your home in Miami Gardens or Aventure or Pinecrest or downtown. I'm talking about until you finish your spiritual journey, journey and the vision is accomplished. He knows the way home when you and I don't. He knows the 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 year plan when we don't. He has all the money on the planet when wasn't it the communists who came up with the five-year plans? Just, I'm just saying. When we don't, he'll make a way where there is no way when we can't. You see what I'm saying? I do, I don't, I do not have a five-year plan for myself. I barely have a one-week plan for myself. I have no idea what God's going to give me tomorrow. Ugh. If you'll do what you know to do today and just obey, then the light begins to open. It begins. If you just obey, well, you don't. None of us does. You you understand that God's law, the, the the gold standard of obedience is 100%. Anything short of that is sin. <sighs> to evolve and the spiritual evolutionary process sets in and it begins to literally carry you as you obey God. The spiritual evolutionary process. Sorry, I don't believe in that theory of evolution. The second thing that we learn from this story is that well let me give you some a precursor to that fire is made from a chemical reaction between you know oxygen in the atmosphere and some sort of fuel for fire to happen you have to have oxygen mix with some kind of fuel like wood or gasoline. And the other thing is, the fuel 
has to be heated to a level that when the oxygen hits it, spark flies and the fire starts. You see what I'm saying? Nowhere in Scripture do we read in Deuteronomy, in Leviticus, Numbers... Here we go. An argument from silence, apparently. Or Exodus. Mixed with a little bit of fire chemical talk. During the Israeli sojourn in the wilderness. Nowhere do we read God ever saying in 40 years, make sure whenever you park at night, the three million people and all the cattle, make sure you always park next to a 500 foot tall tree. That way I'll be able to heat the tree up and then oxygen will hit it. And the What are you talking? Oh man. Yeah, I, I stand by what I said. This guy needs to be randomly drug screened. Tree will burn all night because, as you know, oxygen needs fuel to burn. So always stop by a big, tall tree. Did you ever say that in the Bible? Never does God direct them to any kind of fuel to mix with the oxygen. Why? Because God is the fuel. Oh, man. I'm, I'm, you, you do understand that the whole pillar of fire thing is not about God being the fuel. It's about the presence of the Lord being there with the... Uh, never mind. What, what seminary did you graduate from, Rich? It, it, it's apparent you have no concept or clue how, how to translate... Uh, interpret God's word at all. We are off into loony land. He's the fuel. He's your fuel. Here's the truth, men and women. In this walk with the Lord, as you pursue this passionate vision God gives you, and God's given every one of us some kind of vision for living, as you pursue it, there will always be the unexplainable that happens along the way. Okay, let's get this straight. So, you, so what you did was, you killed the lamb, you ate the lamb, you put blood on the doorpost, you waited, and you got out. How'd that happen? It was God. You're telling me that a Passover angel showed up and killed... The firstborn of every home where there's no blood. That, God, I can't. There's, all I can ask God because we didn't plan. We, you know, we did what we were told to do, but we had no idea. You know, we just couldn't cover that many homes in a night, and we wouldn't have done any. We were the slaves. We were not in charge. It was God. You're telling me that there was this point where you got to the Red Sea and it split. What are you talking? It's God. It's God. Please, I promise you, it was God. There's no other explanation. That's how He leads you and me, by faith. And as we move in faith, He is... Why do I think that this is? there's a completely different definition of faith at, in operation here than the biblical one? Our fuel! He'll be that unseen commodity that mixes with the oxygen in the atmosphere to create light in the heat of the night. He'll show up. In your most desperate moment, He will show up. He will take you all the way home. He is your fuel. You're telling me your wife came back to you after all the stuff you put her through for 20 years? How did that happen?
I don't mean to be simple. I don't mean to be... I'm just telling you, it was God. It was God. That unexplainable force, the fuel, it's God. Hallelujah. God's an unexplainable force? Oh, boy. That is not a biblical description of God. God is not an... So... In the heat of the night, when the pressure is mounting, always remember this, church. If you will do what you know to do, if you'll do what you know to do, there will always be direction from God. If, if, if you do. That's law talk. If you do. This isn't gospel. This is all. All law. Good luck. Have fun. Fill your home. And God will be the fuel to make things happen when there's just no way. I want to close with this story. Some of you are barely hanging on with me. I know it's been a long night. barely hanging on with you it has nothing to do with being a long night it has to do with the fact that you sir you're just pulling stuff out of thin air making stuff up out of your mind and preaching it as if it's in the bible unbelievable long day almost finished 11 years ago this past Friday Pastor Robin and I arrived in Miami to live. We did not take leadership of the church for another month, but we moved on July 24, 1998, to the city of Miami from Seattle, Washington area, Tacoma, Washington, where we had lived for 17 years. Now, if you look at the map, you're looking at it. That's correct. This is Seattle up here. And this is Miami, way down here. That's about 2,800 miles as the grow flies, but when you go on the southern route, it's about 4,500-mile drive. And uh, all kinds of stuff happened between these two points for us to get here. Lots of stuff. (laughs) How many people know about stuff? You see, this is his personal story of, of traveling from Egypt, a.k.a. Seattle, to Miami, quote, the promised land. Here's the goal, here's your departure, and in between is the stuff. All right? We were moving our four sons. Our oldest was going into his senior year in high school. People called us the worst parents on the planet called Earth. To move your oldest child in his senior year of high school. So many things happened to make us know this was God's will. At the time, we didn't really want to kill the lamb. What lamb did you... Wow, this is what happens with allegory, folks. I mean, you, anything can mean anything. There, the, the truth has no meaning. The Bible can mean whatever it is you want it to mean, because it doesn't mean. Oh, oh. The lamb, put the blood on the doorpost. 
wait, you're getting out of here. But we did. And after the congregation said yes and we said yes, the marriage was to begin, there was about a four-month period of time before we became the senior servant leaders of this church. And um, one of the key things that happened to us, I'll never forget it. Cue sappy music. Um, about a month after we had all made the decision that we were supposed to hook up, we came back to Miami just to go over some details with the board of directors and where we were going from here. And one of the things we needed to do was get a house to live in. And um, we just met a realtor who is still to this day a good friend of ours. Wonderful man. Wow, what a great guy. And people would say that's just a hit and miss thing. We believed it was God. And he told us, he asked us, what do you have in the Northwest? What kind of place do you have? Where are you located? We told him everything about our house. He mentioned one little community, said that's where you're supposed to be. And just the name of the community shocked me. And I went, oh, that sounds like, I don't think we could live there. I don't have any money. He said, you need to look there. So in the next three days, we looked at about 25 different houses. Now, here was the situation we were facing. 1985, one of my dearest friends in the world said, Rich, I'm starting my own contracting business. He'd been a subcontractor for years. I'm starting my business, and the Lord told me that I was supposed to build a house for you strictly at cost. That friend of mine on a lot that we own built a 5,300 square foot home for us for $120,000. Now, folks, you cannot get a one-bedroom, one-bath condo in Dade County for $120,000. So you can imagine from 1985 to 1998, we were moving to Dade County. How to replace that with today's economy? We looked at a number of homes all over, but this one home in this. Ori- I, why do I feel like we're going to hear all about his faithfulness and his obedience that made it possible for him to have this? No. Original place where he mentioned appealed to us, but of course it was just so high priced that oh you got to be kidding. And about three hours before we left Miami to fly back to Seattle. The realtor said, why don't you just put in a ridiculous offer that would be easy for you to maintain? Just a stupid offer. We went, well, what you call stupid and what we call stupid are really two different things. And, no, 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 I said, I'm very serious. He said, these are bad times. In fact, that was at the very... Exegeting story from his own life, because, I mean, we all know his life is just as good as the story of the uh, children of Israel being led out of Egypt during the Passover. Bottom end of the previous recession in America, 1997, 98, back there in Miami Day, wasn't too good financially at that point. So... We said, okay, so we... I will be invoking the emergency gospel sermon on tonight's podcast. Just want to let you all know that. Made this ridiculous offer on this house. And we said, do not turn this off, 
offer into the owners until we're on the plane. Because we didn't want to ever see those people again. Okay? That's how stupid the offer was. So he said he promised he would. So we got on the plane. We flew home to Seattle. It was about a five and a half hour flight. We get to Seattle. We drive home. It's getting dark. And our house had been closed for about a week. And we went upstairs. Shadows were falling. It was getting dark outside. It was dark upstairs. And that's... I don't mean to mean like this is like a hundred years ago this happened. But, you know, in 1998, we were still really using fax machines. Remember that? Like, did, did you get my fax? No. Oh, I'll fax it again. Something must have happened. I'll fax it right now. Okay, stay by the phone. Okay, I'm by the phone right now. I'm waiting for the fax to come in. Okay, did you? I got it. Oh, good. I mean, sometimes we use fax and people find them four or five days later now. But usually it's texts, you know, and emails now and all that. But we were really into faxing back then. And I went over to the phone and next to the phone was the fax machine. And on the fax machine was a two-page response from the owners accepting our ridiculous offer completely. Well, see, it was the pillar of fire. Bob and I looked. I mean, this is just like you know, crossing the Red Sea. Each other, and I was kind of shaken. I went, "Uh oh!" And she went, "We're supposed to go for sure now." See, it was in the heat of our night when the pressure was building that God said, "I got a place for you. I got a place where your boys will feel like we really are in the will of God." You're going to cross about 10 Red Seas in the next several years. But they need to know going in, this is the will of God. And you know something, folks? A month later, we came back to close the house at the title company. And the lawyers were there. And the title people were there. And real estate people were all there. We walked into the title company. And the couple that was selling us the house just kind of gasped. And went, oh, it's the Wilkinsons. And they were wonderful Jewish people and over the next 10 minutes the lady went on to testify to everybody in the room how two years earlier she and her husband had accepted Christ by watching Trinity Broadcasting Network at the darkest hour of their life she went on to tell all the people in the room you know Pastor Rich, we watched you and Robin twice a week for these past two years on the Peacemakers telecast. We heard you tell us that you were moving to Miami, that God had called you to Miami, Pastor Rich. Then her husband breaks in, a wonderful man. He says, and then, to our amazement, we received this ridiculous offer from you people to purchase our house. We were fixing to rip up the paper when all of a sudden the Holy Spirit said, Give the Wilkinsons what they want. <laughs> and I looked at him and I said, Why don't you just give us the house? And he said, A deal's a deal, Reverend. Uh, I need a bucket. I'm, I'm going to throw up. I am just getting sick. This is all anecdotal. Um, how do you know Satan wasn't the one that inspired them to do all this? The reason I ask the question is because this preaching isn't in line with the clear teaching of the Word of God. At all. Mormons have burnings in the bosom. 
they have miraculous things happen to them too. Should we assume that God is working in Mormonism? In the heat of the night, the most stressful moment, you get out of your boat, step on the water, you believe it's going to turn to cement under your feet, when all you've got is kill the lamb, eat the lamb, put the blood on the doorpost, we're getting out of here, you do that. Oh, by the way, on the way out, ask them for cash. They hate your guts, but ask them for cash. And you strip the land of their prosperity on the way out the door into victory. I will never leave you nor forsake you. The pillar of fire by night, I am your fuel. In your darkest hour, I'll be your fuel. Wow, wow, wow. Uh, man, uh, my head is... my. I, I, I got a headache after listening to that. Nauseated. It's just, just unbelievable. That was not a biblical sermon, folks. Christ was nowhere to be seen. Nowhere to be seen at all. That was not a Christian sermon. He mangled God's word, treated it allegorically, talked about obedience, never once got the point of what was going on at Passover. That was about Christ, our spotless Passover lamb. The gospel's there in the text, sitting right in front of him. Instead, we got this stuff. Unbelievable. Folks, the good news of the Bible, the good news of Scripture, is about what Christ has done for us. Jesus Christ was that pillar that led the Israelites out. It was Christ's blood, literally the, the lamb, the spot, the, bland, the, lamb, the blood of the spotless lamb that saved Israel, that saves us. Jesus, it, it, when Jesus was crucified, it said that none of his bones were broken. Why? Because the illusion's so clear that Jesus is our Passover lamb. Who takes the place for us when God is judging the world and bringing the destroyer to judge the world? We get off scot-free and are brought out of the land of slavery, the real land of slavery set free from sin, death, and the devil by what Christ has done for us on the cross and his blood on us. This is the message that Christian pastors are called to preach. Not men like Rich Wilkerson. I don't know what it is that he preaches, but that wasn't Christianity. Unbelievable. Folks, if... You <laughs> In order for us to continue bringing this important radio discernment outreach, where we compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God and proclaiming Christ and Him crucified for our sins, it's imperative that you support us financially. Your financial generosity not only makes it possible for us to bring this program to you, but to others as well. You can support us by uh, a couple of ways. First of all, by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and clicking on one of our friendly yellow donate buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. 
Our prayers go out to the folks there at Trinity in Miami that God would send them real preachers to preach the real gospel and call them to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Unbelievable. All right. Well, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. If you'd like to email me, you can. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com or look me up on Facebook or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ in his vicarious death on the cross for your sins. Amen. <laughs>